The pandemic has depressed blood and plasma donations to what the Health and Human Services Department is calling historic lows. So the department has launched a public campaign to get more people to donate. Here with the details, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Infectious Disease, B.K. Hayes. Ms. Hayes, good to have you on. Great. Thank you for having me this morning. And just frame the problem for us because the federal government doesn't directly collect blood. But what is going on and how do you monitor it and, and for what purpose? Sure. So what's going on? We've had record shortages of blood Because of COVID-19, we saw a record shortage, you know, because at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we were instructing, you know, stay home, isolate. But then as we did that, we also, we started to have these incredible blood shortages. And because of that, we really needed to go back to ramping up blood donations, blood and plasma uh, donations uh, in our communities. It seems like Perhaps people were fearful of the fact that could COVID be in the blood? I mean, there was, you know, when HIV was extant in the land, you couldn't give because HIV was in the blood. Is that true of the coronavirus? No. What was happening is that we saw very early on with COVID in Washington state, and we started talking about safety protocols and large gatherings that really impacted our, our blood donation drives. For example, a huge segment of our population, our federal employees, give blood at their their office blood drives. And so when you had social isolation and people uh, working from home, we didn't have those big, large gatherings of blood drives. So that was a contributing factor, and we saw that throughout the country. So it had nothing to do with sort of COVID, but really about uh, large gatherings of, of colleagues and employees and offices. But just to clarify the fear that someone could get COVID from a blood donation, that is unfounded? That is unfounded. Okay, Correct. well, that's good to know. We'll settle that yeah, one right no, absolutely, there. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And how do you stay on top of or aware of the infrastructure of blood donation? Because aside from the Red Cross, which is national in scope, there are lots of regional and hospital chain related donation agencies. How do you how do you keep track of what's going on? Sure, I have an incredible team uh, that leads on the blood side, and they work really in partnership with the Red Cross and finding out exactly what's happening. You know, we know from time to time where there are regional shortages and what's happening, so we're able to keep on top of that. And those agencies and partners work very close together because they all want to be able to provide blood and needed blood products um, uh, to their hospitals and sort of jurisdictions. And does the shortage, is it even across the nation or are there areas that are particularly in hard shape? No, it was across the nation, but I'm pleased to say that we're turning the corner on that. Um, We are, you know, we look at sort of this color coding. At one time we were in the red on a daily basis. We were in the yellow on a daily basis. And right now we're in the green, which means we have adequate daily supplies in reserve, so to speak. So we're turning the corner. And that's really because we're ramping up all of our blood and plasma donation drives and the incredible work of our blood partners across the country. And what about military donations? Because I think doesn't the armed services have donations from their members regularly within their own areas? Absolutely. They're an incredible partner of ours. We work very closely with them. You know, early on, um, you know, Admiral Rachel Levine, who is our Assistant Secretary for Health, 
worked really closely on messaging and making sure that our federal employees knew, you know, we want you to go donate blood. We want to make sure that you can do that in your community. And we tried to get that message broadly across our federal colleagues. We're speaking with BK Hayes. She is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Infectious Disease at Health and Human Services. And by the way, how does this fall under infectious disease of all the possible places in HHS? Well, our office has a really broad portfolio. So we work with the blood and tissue safety and availability, blood and plasma and tissue safety and availability. We also work with HIV, AIDS, sexually transmitted infections, hepatitis. So we have a whole host, vaccine and immunization. And so we really do have a broad portfolio and it works quite well together because so many of these issues are interconnected. They're not siloed. So it's good that we can all come together and work in that space. I guess every part of the body depends on blood flow. So when you look at it from that standpoint, <laughs> yeah, blood is everywhere. And Absolutely. Do you have a sense of the blood consumption patterns? I mean, I tend to think of blood donations as post-accident or trauma, but there are chronic needs too, correct? Absolutely. Really good point. There are chronic needs, and that's why, um, you know, we talk about donating blood and plasma, they're so critical and they're very different in that sense. Um, you know, our blood donors can go in. Typically, it's um, a half hour to an hour to donate blood. And it's a different process for plasma, which can take a lot longer. And it's a different process. And there's so many people in our country that need blood plasma for illnesses and conditions that they have. And so it's not just a serious accident or, say, for example, an auto accident or some type of trauma. There are people that need uh, plasma for them to survive sort of health conditions. Sure. And what is HHS specifically doing to increase donations? What can what can you do? Because it has to be right. leveraged through all of these local organizations. Sure. Well, I want to talk about our campaign. Our office just launched, Office of Infectious Disease and HIV AIDS Policy. We launched, we're out of the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health, excited because we launched a Giving Equals Living campaign. And it is a blood and plasma donation campaign. And it is really to ramp up the communities and everyone going to donate. You know, and what I'm so impressed about this campaign, we tell real stories. Um, and that's important to me uh, because it helps make the connection in people's minds how it impacts them or impacts their family members or the in the community where they where they live. For example, we have a person in that's highlighted in one of our, our videos, uh, a gentleman named Earl. He's from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he was badly wounded by a roadside bomb in Afghanistan, which has really led to massive blood loss and the need to have his leg amputated. So he survived, but he's in need of several blood transfusions. So these are the kind of examples and real stories that are told in our videos because we want people to make that connection, how important it is for them to donate and how it impacts real people in their lives. And how are the videos distributed? What are the media by which people are seeing the messages? Sure, sure. Well, you always can go to our website to see our videos and share, the, uh, share that information. All of that is uh, projected there. One thing, we work very closely with our partners, and it's important for us to also share those materials with our partners so they have our materials and can share those in their communities. And that's important because when we talk about partners, we want them to take the information that we have and then share it in their communities because that's where it makes the most sense. So we distribute those things through our website and through our partners. 
And what about social media, which seems to be the main way messages get out these days? So do you have public service types of presentations on on the social media platforms? We do. And um, Admiral Rachel Levine is awesome with the social media. We, you know, tweet out messages from her. And, you know, she's a person everyone listens to. So that's the right person we have out there delivering those messages for us. When we talked about the shortages, she's a really can-do, let's get it done. And so brought all of the thought leaders together and said, hey, we need to, you know, inform and update our federal partners across the government. She made that call, sort of call to action. And it's amazing how you start to see those things change and turn. I guess you could call her an influencer. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And do you have a way of tracking impressions to know that eyeballs are actually getting these videos and the messages? Yes, we do. And that's where I rely on the smarts of my health communications team, because they're the ones that are tracking and and seeing how we're doing. It tells us where we need to perhaps redirect uh, what partners we look at, you know, partner engagement. You know, this campaign, we work closely with partners, but at the end of the day, if it's not reaching the communities we need to reach, then we need to tweak and pivot. So our health communications team are, you know, watching those metrics to make sure we're on target. And just a final question. A few years ago, HHS somewhere at NIH, I think it was, had a program to try to modernize dialysis and kidney treatment because that's a difficult, expensive process, big machinery that hasn't really been updated substantially since the 1930s. By the same token, is there any possibility or any effort to update the procedures for blood donation, which seem to have not changed much in the 50 years I've been donating? (laughs) Really good question. And I know we've had lots of discussions about sort of modernization of the work that we do. Those conversations continue with all of our federal partners and that's the one thing is because we, our office, my office, we don't do this work alone. We have to rely on our partners at NIH and FDA and CDC that all have a stake in this. So those discussions are ongoing. Ultimately, though, it still takes a needle in the arm. Ultimately, it does. All ultimately, right. does. And ultimately, we've got to get there so we can donate blood and plasma. B.K. Hayes is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Infectious Disease at Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. We'll have some links to those videos. Draw the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a a number of those, too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders, and then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I, 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.